From Silicon Valley to Wall Street, the promise and perils of artificial intelligence are playing out on the world stage. But what will the next phase of AI adoption look like? Which companies from big tech to startups will dominate? And where do the risks and unintended consequences lie? I'm Emily Chang. Join me at Bloomberg Tech in San Francisco, May 9th, to answer many of the industry's burning questions. Alongside SNAP's Evan Spiegel, Xbox president Sarah Bond, OpenAI's Brad Lightcap, top researcher Dr. Fei-Fei Li of Stanford, and many more. More details and just a few tickets left at Bloomberg.com slash TechSF. Thanks for joining us for this special edition of Bloomberg Daybreak. I'm Nathan Hager. The U.S. market is closed for the Thanksgiving Day holiday. Coming up this hour, we will look at how the retailers are doing as we approach the holiday shopping season, beginning with Black Friday. Plus, we'll get an update on some big antitrust cases, including the Justice Department's lawsuit against Google. Also... Is there room for seconds at the Thanksgiving feast? We'll look at the Ozempic effect on the holiday meal. First, though, let's dig into what's driving the market and talk about oil, because crude has been on quite a ride. We've seen about a $30 swing in the price of a barrel this year. There are a lot of factors at play, among them wars in Ukraine and the Middle East, and of course, the ongoing recovery from the pandemic. So for more on what's in store for the energy space, we have an expert roundtable set up for you. John Kilduff is with us on the phone. He is the founding partner at Again Capital. And Stephen Shork is joining us on Zoom. Stephen is president of of the short group. Thanks to both of you for being with us on this holiday. And I'll start with you, John, because it wasn't that long ago we were talking about the return of $100 a barrel oil. Now we're quite a ways off from that. What happened? Well, basically, uh, the sum of our worst fears for the market just never materialized. Uh, with the, the, the initiation of the Ukraine war put or was thought to put you know, meaningful amounts of Russian supplies of crude oil and refined products at jeopardy it to be embargoed by the West, that they wouldn't be purchased. Meanwhile, they found a home almost immediately in China and India and Turkey to a lesser extent. And then, uh, you know, from there, a uh, similar situation here with the situation in Gaza, fears about, you know, all kinds of a parade of horribles about the Strait of Hormuz getting shut, Iran getting involved. And meanwhile, really, the uh, unfortunate situation has been very much contained to Gaza, uh, no regional spillover, and certainly no threat to any supplies of oil. So once those geopolitical risk premiums dissolved, uh, we're back to dealing with the relative uh, even or oversupply and the worries about the main other factor in this market, which is demand and China and the, the situation with their blackluster economy, their property market situation being deteriorating, and of course, even Japan now showing significant economic weakness and, and demand for oil. Is that how you see things, Stephen? Is risk premium off the table? Is there a risk it returns? Yeah, absolutely. No, I, I never even thought risk premium was adequately priced in for, for the few days that we actually saw a pop post-October 7th. So I am quite perplexed that there is no risk premium. And, and in fact, there's there's now a discount being priced into the market. It is just amazing to me that the market continues to ignore what is going on. This is a war, not between Israel and Hamas. This is not a military conflict. This is not a police action. This is a war. This is a war between Israel and let's face it, Iran, uh, the Hamas 
Hezbollah, the Houthis, uh, have all declared war on Israel, i.e. the West. So that is Iran. And the fact that we have 40% of the world's waterborne oil that flows through a 40-mile strait of Hormuz, and people refuse to um, to factor that in, I, I think the market's taking a, a tremendous risk. So the, the theme coming into this year was China, 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 to quote our Jam Brady here, and <laughs> uh, with all of that demand. And uh, you know, China never never materialized. China, quite frankly, to me, looks like Japan circa early 1990s. Uh, the curtain is being pulled back on that regime and on that economy. So now going into the new year, there are legitimate concerns whether is China really the tiger of the Far East or is it now just a paper tiger? He raises an interesting point, John. Is this market underpricing the potential for risk premium to return? And what about the fundamentals going into 2024? Well, I think you would need to see a real escalation here. I mean, I, for me, and I don't mean to be, you know, anything less than, you know, this is a horrible situation, but look, Hamas kind of got left hanging uh, by Iran and by, um, you know, Hezbollah in the north. The Hamas thought that these other parties would come in on their side and, and really make this the one, make this the situation. And if that had happened, then what everything Stephen just said, and I would have been right on board with that, we would have had material amounts of crude oil uh, at risk. And, you know, for whatever reason, the, the calculation just wasn't there. I don't know whose miscalculation it was. It's saying it sounds like it was Hamas's because they're not getting the support right now that they expected. They're getting pinprick sort of dust-ups in various parts of, of Syria and other places by Iran, which they're getting hit back with. But again, no material amounts of oil. The fundamentals, though, are are interesting. And certainly it's going it's hard to make an argument for prices to go much lower because of what Saudi Arabia has been doing with their output policy and OPEC Plus overall. Uh, Once again, OPEC Plus has fallen short of their lofty goals, but the Saudis haven't. They have delivered. They're only producing 9 million barrels a day. Can you imagine that the United States produces 30% more oil right now than Saudi Arabia does? Yep, that's the case. And Saudi exports are down. So, you know, there's a potential for relative tightness emerging. But again, without China getting back into a groove of growth, Uh, it's hard to see prices materially going higher either. I think I hear you want to pop in there, Stephen. What's your view on whether uh, the Saudis continue with these supply cuts that we've seen over the last couple months? Oh, yeah. No, no. I'm I'm, I'm certainly on board uh, with John that uh, with regard to uh, first the geopolitics, that it is a wait and see market, right? We know everyone knows that risk is there, but for no no one's willing to price it in. And therefore, we're going to have to wait. Uh, It certainly is a concern with with, with Saudi Arabia. And and let's keep in mind, the, the Sunni Saudis and the Shia Persians uh, don't necessarily agree on, on, on I mean, they, they, they really hate one another. I mean, let, let's be honest here. And uh, the fact that the Saudis are doing what they can to keep prices uh, higher with regard to production. Yeah, I do see that. I agree with John. I do see that going forward, that they are sticking to their guns. Uh, and I think they're going to continue to stick to their guns because when we look at the spread action uh, difference between prices in the near term versus prices longer out along the curve, uh, we're going into a situation where where pricing on the front end of the curve is signaling to the market that it is oversupplied relative to demand. In, in, I want to say in crude oil, you're not seeing that dynamic playing out in gasoline, which is very interesting because gasoline demand is strong, uh, as we know, uh, for this holiday. Uh, we're looking at one of the strongest holiday seasons since, uh, well, certainly in the post-COVID uh, start. 
And uh, so the gasoline spreads are tightening. So there seems to be some concern with regard to supply in that manner. But the overall global market, when we see how the spreads have really started to come down the front end, OPEC watches this stuff. So the formation of the forward curve is very um, important. I'm friends and I I work with OPEC. I do know they put a lot of emphasis on this. Uh, Therefore, with the spreads collapsing, Saudi Arabia, if they're going to make any move, would probably in the new year, if the spreads stay the way they are, they'll probably cut rather than add uh, production going into 2024. Is that how you see it as well, John? And if Saudi Arabia does continue to cut, does the rest of OPEC plus follow? The Saudis have certainly, uh, you know, put their shoulder to the wheel here. The, the new um, the energy minister, Mohammed bin Salman, has, uh, you know, delivered lollipops and, and they want a higher price. They, you know, they need to pay for Neom and, and their other aspirations uh, for their country. And they want oil prices closer to 100. The question I have, though, is that are we getting closer to the cycle, the point in the cycle where the Saudis throw a fit again, like they did back in 2000, right before, excuse me, 2020, right before COVID hit uh, and flooded the market to collapse the price to try to squeeze out higher cost producers, which they're kind of suffering from right now. Part of their problem is the United States with the 12 million barrels per day of production and about 5 million barrels per day, we're pushing on it anyway, of daily crude oil exports. So we're making their job a lot harder as the years go by here. We'll see if that persists. But I do believe the Saudis want higher prices, and I do think they're willing to take one or more for the team to succeed in that endeavor. And so, yes, I'm with Stephen on that, that they're more than likely to cut right now until they finally throw that fit and uh, and collapse the market. Stephen, what about the impact of central banks and demand? Can prices grind higher when we could potentially see interest rates fall and the potential for a slow in demand? depending on how this economy goes into 2024. Yeah, that is a really interesting uh, point. And uh, and really, I, I'm perplexed. I, I'm impressed with the U.S. economy uh, when we consider that uh, consumer spending is 70, 70% of the economy. And we're looking at 18 consecutive months of credit card debt, uh, well over $1 trillion with interest rates on those credit cards at 22%. When we look at savings rates that we've all gone through all of the savings that we or the income or the cash that was printed by the US government, we no longer have those savings. So I don't know where where the juice from the consumer is coming from, but it's there. So certainly if we do see uh instead of if rate rises ha- have indeed been been cut, you know, we've seen the end of it. I'm skeptical on that, but if we have and to your point, if we do start to see interest rates coming back, well, heck, if the U.S. consumer can spend in a 22% credit card interest environment, uh, you start bringing those down uh, a few hundred basis points, then I can see this uh, certainly being a catalyst that that will be that next tranche, that next demand driver that can certainly propel oil prices higher into the new year. Thanks for this look at what could be driving oil prices into 2024. That was Stephen Shork, president of the Shork Group, joining us on Zoom, and John Kilduff, founding partner at Again Capital, with us on the phone on this special Thanksgiving Day edition of Bloomberg Daybreak. And straight ahead, we'll get you set for Black Friday. We'll look ahead to the holiday shopping season with Bert Flickinger of Strategic Resource Group. It's 18 minutes past the hour. I'm Nathan Hager, and this is Bloomberg. 
From Silicon Valley to Wall Street, the promise and perils of artificial intelligence are playing out on the world stage. But what will the next phase of AI adoption look like? Which companies from big tech to startups will dominate? And where do the risks and unintended consequences lie? I'm Emily Chang. Join me at Bloomberg Tech in San Francisco, May 9th, to answer many of the industry's burning questions. Alongside SNAP's Evan Spiegel, Xbox president Sarah Bond, OpenAI's Brad Lightcap, top researcher Dr. Fei-Fei Li of Stanford, and many more. More details and just a few tickets left at Bloomberg.com slash TechSF. Welcome back to this special edition of Bloomberg Daybreak. The U.S. markets are closed for the Thanksgiving holiday. I'm Nathan Hager. And retailers, well, they're open and entering their most crucial time of the year. For many, it has already begun with Black Friday sales underway. And for more on the kickoff of holiday shopping season, we welcome Bert Flickinger, Managing Director at Strategic Resource Group. Bert This time of year is always big for retail, but how big is this year's holiday shopping season, particularly when you think about companies like Walmart warning about the consumer outlook heading into next year? Nathan, uh, happy Thanksgiving Day. And uh, there is some concerns with Walmart and everyone else uh, that while retail sales will be up three to three and a half percent over the holiday season and uh, this uh, Black Friday weekend, Overall, adjusted for inflation, sales are flat. And on the Bloomberg Terminal, the University of Michigan consumer sentiments uh, near uh, a 12-month low. And that's all due to inflation and people, uh, 60% of people uh, going paycheck to paycheck and carrying a lot of consumer debt. So does that have you thinking that a lot of shoppers are going to be going into more of the lower end retail chains as opposed to some of the higher-end locations? Yes, Nathan. The U.S. Department of Commerce is reporting that anything's food-based, like you said, Walmart, Costco, uh, Kroger, uh, will do well. But the category-dominant areas of the business, uh, home improvement, uh, furniture, sporting goods, electronics are all trending down even not before they're adjusted for inflation. So the uh, consumer spending, but the consumer's cautious. And my alma mater, PricewaterhouseCoopers, said almost all the spending increases are coming from the top 20% of people in uh, the disposable income ladder. So what does that mean when it comes to the kind of deals that we're used to seeing on Black Friday? If the thinking is that a lot of shoppers are looking more toward the lower end, more of the staples, does that mean we're going to see deeper discounts on some of those like consumer tech items that you usually think about selling really well around Black Friday and beyond? Uh, Yes, you'll see better deals uh, because Walmart, Target, and others are still carrying 10 to 15% more inventory than uh, they were pre-pandemic. And uh, all the retailers really started uh, their Black Friday holiday sales programs uh, either right after Labor Day or right after Columbus Day or Indigenous Peoples Day. Uh, So the deals have been out there for a long time, and a lot of the people's shopping have has already been done. So PricewaterhouseCoopers is saying a 
about 42% of the shopping is going to be done online, 41% uh, percent in store, and the remaining 17% click and collect. Uh, but a lot of the shopping's uh, been completed, uh, except at Macy's with the Thanksgiving Day Parade right near Bloomberg's World Headquarters, mm-hmm. uh, doing well. And uh, this is their big day is uh, with the Macy's Parade is Thanksgiving Day. Well, if so much of the shopping has already been done even before Black Friday, what kind of impact could some of these Black Friday discounts even have? Nathan, uh, your excellent point, de minimis impact, because we're overstored in the suburbs and understored in the cities or the urban areas. So it's interestingly, it's uh, up to the Federal Trade Commission. Uh, and Exhibit A is letting Kroger and Albertsons merge to protect unionized employers and unionized jobs. And it was infirmed by John and Margot Katzbatidis from Gristidis and D'Agostino after they and teammates gave out 10,000 turkeys. We talked to Democratic National Committee Chair Ed Rendell, uh, Governor David Patterson, and Senator Malcolm Smith, and, and John and uh, Margot Katzbatidis. And they said it's, it's really up to the government uh, to let the chains, especially the Kroger's of the world that are unionized, continue to operate and expand in the urban areas as well as suburban and rural areas because Walmart and Amazon have been subsidized in the city. And as soon as the government subsidies run out, uh, Walmart tends to close and exit the urban areas as uh, they did ignominiously uh, in the south and uh, west side of Chicago uh, before this uh, 2023 holiday season. Speaking with Bert Flickinger, the Managing Director of Strategic Resource Group, how do you expect this particular holiday shopping kickoff to compare to years past when we think about so much of the consumer running out of excess savings, relying more on credit cards? How is that going to play out uh, when it compares to some past Black Fridays? As it plays out, Nathan, it's uh, buy now, pay later. Uh, PwC said uh, that 15 percent of the purchases uh, for this uh, Black Friday weekend and small business uh, Saturday and uh, two days and Cyber Monday and four days, it's going to be buy now, pay later. 15 percent of all purchases uh, will be that way. And consumers are still taking on credit card uh, debt, but 63% of consumers uh, will be buying with debit cards, so instant cash uh, to the retailers and trying to put less on credit as interest rates have uh, climbed and the average household has 17000 in revolving unpaid credit card debt. What's the read-through to retailers' bottom lines, their profit margins, if we do see more consumers relying on buy now, pay later? The retailers' bottom lines will be uh, under pressure uh, because uh, about 3% of consumers are defaulting on uh, credit card debt of some sort, uh, car loans, uh, retail credit card debt, et cetera. So retailers uh, will will have a solid sales season, flat, adjusted for inflation. Uh, Profit will be good, uh, but not great. Uh, But the real concern is the upcoming calendar year going into the election cycle of 2024. Yeah, I did want to get into what this holiday shopping season kickoff means in terms of momentum for retailers. Do you see the momentum growing for retailers once we get past this season, or are there further headwinds? The momentum's growing, and interestingly, Nathan, 
part of it is uh, f- following the Bloomberg terminal. If a company like Bed Bath & Beyond files for bankruptcy or Toys R Us uh, earlier uh, filed for bankruptcy and liquidation, who picks up the business? So Macy's and Target have done a terrific job picking up uh, the toy business, especially Macy's, which on the Bloomberg terminal reported very good earnings. Uh, it's so expensive to feed a family of four for over $50 at McDonald's uh, that for the first first time in uh, decades, more people are buying food at uh, Walmart, Kroger, Costco, and cooking and entertaining at home because it's unaffordable to, to go out. Uh, so uh, that shift in terms of uh, Consumers, regardless of income, are all smart shoppers, and uh, they're shopping more to buy and serve and stay at home uh, rather than go out uh, where our family was uh, one of the largest food service suppliers to the restaurant industry. And the food service restaurant industry, Nathan, marks up the food about 300 percent, marks up the beverages about 700 percent. Uh, for a $15 Big Mac meal at McDonald's, that same meal could be bought at uh, Kroger or Costco or Walmart uh, for about a dollar per person. So just quickly, it looks like we're hearing a lot more thinking about a lot more picking and choosing for this holiday shopping season, perhaps, than in years past. Uh, yes, uh, a lot more cautious, careful shopping, uh, but it, but ultimately, uh, retail has gone from 400% overstored 15 years ago to only about 100% overstored. And in the urban areas, uh, we're, we're 20 to 30 to sometimes 40% understored. So the big opportunity is urban retail, and uh, that's that's where uh, Kroger and the unionized companies uh, to locally, Gristides and D'Agostino's and Morton Williams and Fairway have done it particularly well. All right. Bird Flickinger, thanks for this. That's Bird Flickinger, managing partner at Strategic Resource Group. And still ahead on this Thanksgiving edition of Bloomberg Daybreak, we'll take the pulse of some key antitrust cases in a busy year for the Justice Department against corporate America. It's 35 minutes past the hour. I'm Nathan Hager, and this is Bloomberg. From Silicon Valley to Wall Street, the promise and perils of artificial intelligence are playing out on the world stage. But what will the next phase of AI adoption look like? Which companies from big tech to startups will dominate? And where do the risks and unintended consequences lie? I'm Emily Chang. Join me at Bloomberg Tech in San Francisco, May 9th, to answer many of the industry's burning questions. Alongside SNAP's Evan Spiegel, Xbox president Sarah Bond, OpenAI's Brad Lightcap, top researcher Dr. Fei-Fei Li of Stanford, and many more. More details and just a few tickets left at Bloomberg.com slash TechSF. Welcome back to this special Thanksgiving edition of Bloomberg Daybreak. I'm Nathan Hager. U.S. markets are closed for the holiday. 2023 has been a very busy year for the Justice Department. It's in the middle of a number of high-profile trials aimed at limiting consolidation in corporate America. So who better to get you caught up on these cases than Bloomberg Intelligence Senior Litigation Analyst Jennifer Ree. Jen, thanks for being with us on this holiday, taking a bit of a break from what has been a very busy time (laughs) for you, particularly thinking about Google and these cases uh, against that company and its parent, 
alphabet. Mm-hmm. Let's start with the one that's been going on for quite a while with the Justice Department taking on Google over its dominance in search. What are the allegations there? Where do things stand? Yeah, that is a big one. And some are even calling that one the antitrust trial of the century. I don't know if it, when all is said and done, all that fanfare is going to be worth it. But this trial just ended November 16th. But closing arguments aren't set until early May. So it's going to be some time wow. before. Yeah, really. This judge is taking it very seriously. There was a lot of evidence introduced in the trial, and I think he's going to carefully parse through it all um, before making any decisions and having those closing arguments. But here, what the DOJ has accused Google of doing is illegally maintaining a monopoly in search and a couple different search advertising markets because they have these agreements with Apple and makers of Android mobile devices where they're spending a lot of money, $26 billion, yeah. we heard in 2022, for Google search to be set as the default. So what it means is that if somebody buys a phone, they buy an Android phone, and you go right in, and you go into Safari, let's say. Google is set as your default, whether you know it or not, whether you like it or not, and you do your search, and that's what you're using. And so they're able to then get all the revenue from the advertising that comes up from that search. And the DOJ is basically saying, look, Google's tied up everything with these mm-hmm. agreements. And if Bing and DuckDuckGo can't get in there, you know, they can't improve because you need the data to improve, and you get the data by having more and more people do a search on your service. And we've had, uh, in the course of this case, a lot of numbers revealed almost reluctantly by the parties involved in how much has been spent to keep Google at the top of the search list. But Mm -hmm. when we have so much time between the end of the arguments and the closing arguments in this case, what are we expecting from this judge after all this time pouring through all the evidence? You know, he said himself that he has absolutely no idea how he's going to rule. And I I suppose that's what he should say, because he needs to spend the time to look at the precedent and look at all the evidence before he makes up his mind. I mean, my feeling is that I lean a bit here toward the DOJ. I think the DOJ introduced really compelling evidence that it is very difficult for other search engines to be able to develop and be able to compete with Google having all of these agreements for default. And even though people can change that, you know, Mm -hmm. it's not completely foreclosing. You can go in and change your default to Bing, but they had these experts in behavioral economics that basically showed that in many instances, people simply don't change a default if, if they don't know about it or if they have to do some research or work to figure out how to do it. They just don't do it. Right. And Google's paying $26 billion, So obviously there's a lot of value in being the default. Yeah. I mean, for so many people, Google and search are almost synonymous. I mean, if exactly. the Justice Department ends up winning out in this case, it's going to be a pretty big sea change, not just for the tech industry, but for the people who use it, wouldn't it? Well, you know, it may and it may not. You know, you talk about really these trials being so protracted. We probably won't get a decision given closing arguments in May until I'd say early in the second half of next year. And this is only halfway through this process because the trial that just ended was only on liability. In other words, did Google violate the laws? Did they do something illegal? If it is determined that it did, there will be a whole second trial on what the appropriate remedy is. So you're looking at possibly not even getting an answer to that question until late 2024, maybe early 2025. I doubt a remedy would be so drastic as to do something like break up Google, you know, for 
force it to sell off Google Search or sell off Chrome or something like that. I suspect it would be more like something like sharing the data with rivals or creating a choice screen like Google's been forced to do in Europe. Now, along with this case involving the Justice Department, Google is facing another matter, a lawsuit from Mm -hmm. Epic Games. Uh, Tell us more about where that one stands as well. Right. So this one just started and it's going to go through toward the end of December. It is just private. We did have state attorneys general involved, but they have settled with Google. Basically, everybody who was a plaintiff in this case, except Epic Games, has settled the case. And what Epic Games really objects to are Google's policies and strategies to, to force buyers of the Android mobile devices to download apps through Google's Play Store and not outside of the Play Store. And any kind of app purchases or in-app purchases have to be made through the Play Store and Google services that payment. And so what Epic says is this allows Google to charge developers really an unfairly high fee every time somebody's buying an app. Epic would like access. You know, they Mm. tried this with Apple. They want to be an app store themselves and distribute apps on mobile devices. They've tried this with Apple. They're now trying this with Google to get in there so that they can be an app store and they can service the payments themselves. Well, the last time Epic tried something like this with Apple and ended up losing. Why does it think it stands a better chance this time around? Right. And it mostly lost. There was one little piece in which Epic won, but really what it was going for, it lost. There's some differences. The biggest difference here is that Apple's case was before a jury and Google's case, I'm sorry, Apple's case was before a judge. Google's case is before a jury. And I think that really could cause a difference because a judge is going to focus on the very technical requirements of what a plaintiff has to prove to show illegal monopoly maintenance. And there are a lot of technical hurdles a plaintiff has to get over. It's difficult to to win. A jury may be a little less focused on that. You, you know, if the plaintiffs can portray Google as a bully here or doing something unfair, you know, maybe that'll sway a jury um, and, and they'll focus less on whether or not Epic's met those technical requirements and more on Google's conduct. So maybe Epic feels it has a, a better shot here, given that they'll be playing to a jury and not to a judge. As you mentioned, this one's just getting started, so a lot more to right. watch there. But let's turn back to the Justice Department. The other big case that it's been pursuing is against JetBlue's purchase of Spirit Airlines under anti-competitive argument. Why does the Justice Department see this as anti-competitive when you have uh, quite a few much bigger airlines Mm -hmm. that both of these are competing with. Yeah, it's so interesting because they really are, in the scheme of things in the United States, two small airlines compared to the the legacies. Um, But what the Department of Justice is concerned about is that Spirit has a very particular model. It's called an ultra-low-cost carrier, and it offers very low fares for an unbundled product. In other words, just the fare. If you want to check a bag, if you want a drink, if you want some extra legroom, you have to pay for all of that. Yeah, that's right. Right, right, exactly. And and some people, you know, rely on that very low fare in order to visit friends or family or go on a vacation. JetBlue is a little bit different. It's kind of a step up. It has bigger seats, a little more legroom, a few more amenities, and it it charges higher prices. And JetBlue's been made no bones about the fact that it intends, once it buys Spirit, to change those planes, reduce the seating, and increase the fares. So what the Department of Justice is worried about is this ultra-low-cost unbundled option being removed from the market for some consumers that depend on it. So what is JetBlue? Blue saying to try to assuage the Justice Department that uh, this won't be as anti-competitive as it's saying. 
JetBlue has a good argument too. You know, they say, look, first of all, we're really small and we're all struggling to fight against, compete against the big guys, Delta, United, American, Southwest. We also bring down fares. We bring down the fares of those really expensive airlines and we'll be able to expand capacity with Spirits planes and Spirits pilots and we'll pull the fares down when we compete more vigorously against the big legacy airlines. And that's a pro-competitive effect. So this is going to be an interesting trial where the judge is going to have to really look at both of si- both sides, you know, the anti-competitive side and the beneficial side, and decide which one outweighs the other. And just quickly, Jen, what do you make so far of the Justice Department's pretty aggressive stance in going after uh, what it sees as anti-competitive, anti-monopoly mm-hmm. practices? It's been good to its word. You know, when the Biden administration came in, there was an executive order uh, in which the administration really encouraged all of the agencies, not just DOJ and FTC, to enforce the antitrust laws, to be, you know, to be careful about consolidation in industries and do what they could to make the economy more competitive. And the DOJ said, hey, we're going to follow through with that. And, you know, it's been good to its word. Instead of settling cases that the DOJ views as problematic, like was really the primary practice in the past, the DOJ has brought quite a few laws. Lawsuits and and they are trying to stem the tide of you know M and A activity and and to stop what they view as anti competitive conduct by dominant firms. So, you know they've had mixed success. They've had some success. They've had some failures, but they are doing exactly what they said they would do. And they've given you a feast of topics <laughs> yes. to uh, take a look at. Thanks for this, Jen. Great having you on with us. That's Jennifer Ree, Senior Litigation Analyst for Bloomberg Intelligence. Still ahead on this special holiday edition of Bloomberg Daybreak, we'll take a look at the story that really matters. The Thanksgiving feast. How much is that turkey and trimmings really costing you this year? It's 50 minutes past the hour. I'm Nathan Hager, and this is Bloomberg. Welcome back to this special edition of Bloomberg Daybreak. I'm Nathan Hager. U.S. markets are closed for Thanksgiving Day. And we now turn to the story you were really focused on this holiday. Your meal, the turkey, the stuffing, the green bean casserole, grandma's pumpkin pie. How much is it really costing you compared to years past? And how much room is there for seconds with many Americans now on appetite-suppressing drugs like Ozempic and Wagovi. For some answers, we're joined by Dina Shanker, who covers food for Bloomberg News. So this must really be uh, your time of year, Dina. Thanks for being with us. So overall, inflation is slowing. Is the Thanksgiving meal following? That was not the expectation from Wells Fargo Agri-Food Institute's report that came out uh, last month. Basically, out-of-home eating is just still more expensive, even if uh, that inflation has slowed down. Eating at home is just getting more expensive as certain parts of the supply chain remain elevated. We've seen, for example, canned foods are way up, and that could include your canned pumpkin and your pumpkin pie. It could include uh, canned cranberries. But at the same time, ham prices are up too. All the while, the big centerpiece, the turkey, um, the prediction was for those uh, prices to come down compared to last year. So that is its own special uh, reason for um, coming down because essentially wholesale prices are down uh, from farmers putting too many birds in the barns Mm. and uh, then retailers get to lower their price and consumers win with lower prices. But 
it, we make up for it with the other with with the sides and everything else that we want to eat. So I guess we're getting a little bit of a balance, maybe when it comes to the price of the meal compared to years past, but. You have to wonder now, with so much attention on these GLP-1s, Ozempic, Wagovi, we talk about it all the time, is that going to make the Thanksgiving table a little less of a spread than it's been in the past? So I spoke to a number of uh, people that are taking the GLP-1 drugs, and it was really interesting. Nobody said they were going to serve like less dishes, but some people said they were going to make smaller amounts because they're all eating smaller servings. Um, one woman I spoke to said basically she's going to make that sweet potato casserole. She's going to make the green bean casserole, but she barely plans on eating it. It's mostly for her parents, the guests, um, and she's going to send them home with the leftovers. One woman I spoke to told me that usually in preparation for Thanksgiving, she spends weeks scouring the internet looking for the best recipes, and she's just not thinking about it this year. So she's going to make everything, and she's actually going to even skip her shot so that she can enjoy herself after doing all that work. But all that time that uh, people spend thinking about food in the run-up to Thanksgiving, if you're on one of these drugs, chances are you are not doing all that thinking. And obviously, one Thanksgiving isn't going to give you a trend, but I have to think a lot of grocery stores, a lot of these big retailers that sell groceries are keeping a really close eye on what happens if there's going to be an ozempic impact on their bottom lines, depending on what we see this Thanksgiving. Yeah, I mean, we've been talking to food companies and they definitely have their eye on it. One of the most interesting points came from Walmart because they have have, you know, a pharmacy division and a supermarket division. So they are able to see the overlap there. And they said that the shoppers taking weight loss drugs were buying a little bit less food. You know, actually that woman who I just told you about who's skipping her shot, she says her sons noticed that her house doesn't have the same level of snacks that they used to keep around. <laughs> so it's definitely, it, it really does have an impact on the people taking it. I think the big question is, is how many people are going to be taking it at any given time considering the high cost? considering the lack of availability um, of the drugs for everybody who wants them. And then also there are side effects from these drugs, and some people don't want to uh, stick with them through the side effects, so they so they stop taking them. Yeah, and it's going to be interesting to see just how many leftovers there really are uh, after this Thanksgiving. Thanks for this, Dina. Great having you on with us. That's Bloomberg News food reporter Dina Shanker. And thanks as well to Jennifer Ree of Bloomberg Intelligence, Bert Flickinger of Strategic Resource Group, and our oil panel, John Kilduff at Again Capital and Stephen Short of The Short Group. Special thanks to you as well for joining us on this Thanksgiving holiday. I'm Nathan Hager. Stay with us. Today's top stories and global business headlines are coming up right now. The countdown has begun from May 14th to 16th a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections, gain unique insights and uncover valuable opportunities in one of the world's most rapidly rising regions. Request your invite for this exclusive event at QatarEconomicForum.com.